my beautiful Tropicanas, and welcome to The Ricardo Project, the podcast where I watch through I Love Lucy episode by episode and talk about its historical, emotional, and comedic impact. My name is Dana. I'm so glad that you've joined me today for today's episode, which is Lucy Thinks Ricky is Trying to Murder Her, which premiered 70 years ago today, November 5th? What day is it? It's the 5th. November 5th, 1951. So this episode was written by, again, our favorite season one friends, Jess Oppenheimer, Madeline Pugh, Bob Carroll, directed by Mark Daniels. Uh, so no break in tradition yet. As I mentioned, this is going to continue through the end of the first season. And this was actually the first recorded episode of the series, but it aired fourth after the girls want to go to a nightclub was deemed a better fit. And we'll talk about whether or not we think that was a great idea. So here's what happens in Lucy Thinks Ricky is Trying to Murder Her. Lucy is sitting in her bedroom in yet another amazing pair of pajamas. How many did this woman have? And she's reading The Mockingbird Murder Mystery, like the classic American woman she is. We do love our murders. She's also eating cheese and crackers, so she continues to be the icon of my personal heart. And we get the first ever recorded laugh in I Love Lucy when she dips her cracker into a jar of cold cream instead of into the jar of cheese. But interestingly, that's not the sight gag that gets the laugh. What gets the laugh is the moment when she eats said cracker and she doesn't even notice because she's so entrenched with her book. Anyway, Ricky comes in and he's all a Twitter because he's been extended at the Tropicana and he says that if everything goes as well as it did tonight, they'll stay there a hundred years. And you will, Ricky. You will. He'll be there for the whole series. So he's just monologuing about how great he's doing at work. Lucy isn't hearing a word of it. Her her giant eyes are laser focused on this murder mystery. And finally, Ricky goes to give her a kiss goodnight, which makes Lucy jump a mile, scream, and throw her book out the window. As Ricky tries to sleep, Lucy laments that she, now she'll never know who did it, the upstairs maid, the butler, or the cook. And Ricky says it was her husband, and he has... A great, if incredibly macabre, physical comedy bit where he acts out all the ways a husband could kill his wife. So Lucy fakes starts. So Lucy starts fake snoring in an act of I get the picture. And the next morning she goes to retrieve her book. And again, she is so engrossed that she doesn't realize that the tannest version of Ethel Mertz that I've ever seen or ever will seen has entered the room. Until Ethel gets real close to her and again startles Lucy into throwing the book out the window. So Ethel says she's learned how to read fortunes. And I have to ask at this point, like, what party did Ethel go to the night before? Because I always thought that, like, Tupperware parties were the big thing in the 50s. But it sounds like fortune telling was the paint and sip or stitch and bitch of the time. And honestly, that's pretty cool. I think we should bring that back. So she tells Lucy's fortune, and apparently Lucy is going to die. So Ethel jumps directly to murder, like all best friends do. And of course, this means that Ricky is the top suspect. It doesn't exactly help that Lucy then overhears a conversation between Ricky and his agent that is missing just enough information that Lucy thinks Ricky is plotting to kill her and replace her with another wife, when in reality, he's auditioning an act of dogs with human names to replace his lead dancer, which... I am so intrigued to see that trade-off in his show. He also mentions a gun in his desk drawer, which is a prop gun for a Western number. And honestly, I don't blame Lucy for being a bit on edge. I mean, Ricky's timing is truly awful. 
So there's this great series of physical comedy moments where Ricky reaches out to kiss Lucy goodbye. It fully looks like he's going to strangle her with this huge smile on his face. And then he gets something from the drawer with a gun in it, and he slams the drawer, and Lucy crumples to the ground like she's been shot. I mean, again, I know this is kind of dark, but it totally works, I promise, and it's very funny. So Lucy decides to protect herself from her impending murder by wearing a trash can lid over her butt and a skillet over her heart and constantly, like, bobbing and weaving because she says a moving target is harder to hit. And this is excellent physical comedy from Lucille Ball. It it grounds her flighty hysterics in this counterweight of low, aggressive movement. And Ricky returns home, and Lucy does this bob and weave all all the way to her room and locks herself in. And Fred arrives and just happens to be constantly carrying sedatives with him all the time, which leads me to question Fred as a person, in spite of Fred Merch tie watch going strong. So Lucy sneaks out and sees Ricky pouring a drug that Fred gave him into a glass of seltzer. And again, I am fully on Team Lucy here. I mean, if my husband did this, I would fully believe that he was not on the up and up because this is very screwed up, if I'm honest. Ricky calls Lucy in for them to share a drink. His is seltzer, hers is sleepy seltzer. And in my favorite moments of the episode, Lucy and Ricky engage in this tete-a-tete, resulting in Lucy switching the glasses and Ricky proudly telling Lucy that he switched them back, which then leads to Lucy screaming as she thinks she's been poisoned to death. And she dramatically falls on the couch and prepares for the end. And Ricky leaves and Ethel enters and says a prayer for her dearly departed friend. And then Lucy shoots up, surprised that she's not dead yet. And she grabs the Chekhov's prop gun we saw earlier, and she heads to the club. Upon arriving, she meets the dogs, begins to realize that maybe, just maybe, she was overreacting, and all is forgiven very quickly in true sitcom fashion. The episode ends with this great rule of three moment, where once again the book is scared out of Lucy's hands, but this time she has it on a string and she pulls it right back. And the credits roll. So what did we think of this episode? Now, now I wasn't alive in the 1950s, so maybe it really was the Wild West this episode made it seem, but I doubt it. Um, This whole concept is such great typical sitcom fare because it plays on the recognizable, which in this case is women's fear and strange fascination with danger, murder, mayhem, while ratcheting the character's handling of the given circumstance up to a thousand. And it's such a great example of playing the environment. I mean, the cast, particularly Lucille Ball, as per usual, is taking this comedy seriously. There's no winking or nudging here. Lucille Ball is fully committed to what's happening around her. It's a full investment in the world that's being built. And that's what allows the comedy in this instance to truly sing, because there's nothing funnier than someone taking something really, really seriously, especially when that thing is really, really ridiculous. And that's what makes this episode so funny. And this is a great example of that premise. And what's great about something like this, something where the recognizable is made ridiculous, is that it gives us as the audience a chance for a double-pronged release. So we can laugh and relax at this like heightened portrayal of an all-too-familiar fear while also experiencing the relief that Ricky is not going to hurt Lucy at all. This this it's kind of like a safety net to explore concerns in a relaxed environment. Does that make sense? The comedy is excellent. Lucille Ball's physical work is a masterclass. Desi Arnaz's wide smile is so funny. Bill Frawley is there, again, further cementing my theory that he wasn't given that many lines until he proved himself. Vivian Vance is a little stiff, 
not as relaxed as you might expect based on the ease of her performance so far and in future episodes. I mean, she just sings as this character. But it was the first episode filmed. I'll give her a pass. So should this have been the first episode aired? Was the network right to move it? If you'd asked me before I started this project, I would have said an emphatic yes. And I still like this episode way more than I like the girls want to go to a nightclub. It's just more my speed. It's a preference. But my husband and I watched this one together, and his perspective was that this episode felt a little inside baseball. It was a little lived in, and that girls want to go to a nightclub was a proper introduction to the overall style and the structure of the show at large. And I have never been so proud because he's totally right. So I do think they made the right call in switching this one. Girls want to go to a nightclub. It's a better ensemble piece. It's more representative of a typical episode structure. Totally see why they made that call. Doesn't necessarily make it a better episode than this one. No, I like this one a lot better, but it was the right decision in my opinion. But I'd love to hear your your thoughts. Please shoot me an email, send me a message on Instagram. So those are all my thoughts on the episode. It's definitely a good watch. One of my favorites still. I think it's still very funny when Lucy um, is talking to Ethel and and shows her how she's going to bob and weave. It it makes me laugh every single time. It made my husband crack up. He'd never seen it before. Definitely a good one. Okay, so some historical notes. So with the exception of that laugh, there really aren't any firsts in this episode. Um, However, there are a couple of interesting notes about the production and other little things like that, that because it was the first episode, we really see and we can see how they changed. So first of all, we see that the the Ricardos have twin beds and they're pushed together. And this was pretty common in sitcoms at the time. People would Couples wouldn't be sleeping in the same bed because that would be too sexual, so they would have twin beds, but they'd be pushed together. That was kind of the way that they got around it. So the Ricardos have that for now. In season two, when Lucy gets pregnant, you'll notice that they split the beds. They separate them because now we know that they've had sex, and they had to be very careful when that came. So that's just an interesting thing to think about and keep in mind, that that's going to shift. Um, another thing that they're doing production wise that I found particularly interesting, and they've been doing it actually all through these episodes, but this one was the most egregious is that they have these really intense close ups of Lucy's face, close ups to tell the gag, close ups of the cards. They don't do that as the show progresses. They keep it in kind of the normal frame. They'll zoom in every now and then, but not the way they're doing it now. It's kind of stagnant and weird, in my opinion. And also, please tell me that you saw, because I saw, did Lucy look directly into the camera to signal every commercial break, or did I completely manufacture that? It looks like she's looking right into the camera with her big, beautiful, sad eyes every single time they cut to commercial. It's very weird. They very clearly quickly dropped it because that never happens again as far as I can remember, but it's strange. And then from a production standpoint, you may have noticed that Lucy Ricardo is wearing a robe basically through the entire episode. And that's because when they were originally filming I Love Lucy, they wanted to shoot it as much like a play as possible. So they wanted to shoot it consecutively, which they maintained pretty much unless they couldn't for whatever reason throughout the duration of the show. But they also wanted to not have the big pauses for setups that they would normally have. So there 
in a lot of instances, you'll see people wearing coats and that's because they're wearing their costume for their next scene underneath. They're doing like a quick change, kind of like a play. So they obviously very quickly dropped that. It wasn't sustainable for a television show. It didn't have kind of the suspended reality that a television show might have. So they had them, they, so they quickly dropped that, but it's an interesting thing to consider when rewatching the episode that they were shooting this pretty much consecutively. And there is some evidence to the fact that I Love Lucy never took a second take. That's pretty commonly reported that the show shot basically everything as a one-off. Um, and so that's something to consider as well, that a lot of these people are doing this on their first and only take. I think they only reshot things if there was a technical issue, and they did that because they were trying to maintain a live show atmosphere for the audience, and th- that way the laughs never got stale. I think it's pretty impressive to consider the impact and skill that these people had doing it once. And this this episode, as the first episode filmed, took that to even farther. There's one other thing that I want to talk about that I noticed that is so interesting to me historically and contextually with when the show was being made. So Ricky has that dog act that he's auditioning, right? He has the act of dogs, and all the dogs have human names. They're like Marion, Alice, Joanne, or something like that. And one of the dog's names is Theodore. And when Ricky writes them down, he's like, what? These are dogs? They have human names. When Lucy finds the list later and she thinks that it's a um and she thinks that it's her list of possible replacement wives, people that Ricky is really interested in, she sees the name Theodore and goes, Theodore, and that's it. It's a very clear joke about homosexuality. And not making a joke of homosexuality, but just like, oh, I guess Rick it, it has the tone to me of like, oh, I guess Ricky's interested in men now too. Okay. And that is so interesting to me. I don't think that it's the first gay joke ever put on television. I won't go that far. I didn't really, I'm going to be honest, I reserved my research for something else. But I do think that this is a very, very brave and bold thing for I Love Lucy to do to very clearly reference the fact that gay people exist and that homosexuality exists in its first ever written and recorded episode. And that's because of one of my secret fascinations in life, which is the Motion Picture Production Code, also known as the Hayes Code. So if you don't know what the Hayes Code is, I'm ready to help. The Hayes Code was this set of industry guidelines that was basically self-censorship of content. So it was essentially guidelines that were written down and handed out to all of the movie studios, and it was applied to every motion picture that was created from 1934 to 1968. And they were content guidelines, and the movies wouldn't get approved. They wouldn't be allowed to be made if they violated the Hayes Code ostensibly. So the Hayes Code was named after Will H. Hayes, who was the president of this particular group from 1922 to 1945. He was pretty instrumental in getting this code applied. So the code has a lot of Catholic undertones. It was written by Catholics in, in favor of Catholic values, but it wasn't like the Catholics are here to create this code. It was pretty secretive that it was about Catholic, that there was Catholic influence. Um, but the, the quote that I think of when I think of the Hayes Code is that the code was designed to make sure that throughout the audience is certain that evil is wrong and good is right. And so it was kind of this moral application that was being put on movies at the time. The Hayes Code really came from 
Hollywood and film production being such a new industry that nobody knew what to expect. And people really wanted to have control over it and to restrict it and to sanction it. And so that's where the idea for a morality code surrounding film came from. So the Hays Code had quite a few things that were not allowed. Um, There were quite a few rules about the way that they would make sure that evil is wrong and good is right. There were things obviously like... Um, sex wasn't allowed to be shown in any way, shape, or form. If you've ever watched an old movie and kind of marveled at the fact that none of them open their mouths, it's all like closed mouth kissing for long periods of time, that's a direct reflection of the Hayes Code. The reason they kissed that way in movies is not because they thought that was like the cool way to kiss. It's not because kissing has evolved. It was because kissing open-mouthed was considered too promiscuous. The basic tenet of the Hayes Code, the kind of biggest one, was that if there was someone who was evil or morally bad, they had to be punished at the end. Um, So one of the kind of great anecdotal examples of that is in the movie The Bad Seed. In The Bad Seed, it's a story of an evil child who kills people. And then in the play version of The Bad Seed, the mother of this evil child comes to understand that their child is evil and they poison her to death to kind of like save the world. In the movie The Bad Seed, that wouldn't have been allowed during the Hayes Code because then the mother would have committed a crime and she would have had to be punished as well for killing her child. So they made it so that the evil child died accidentally. I think they like fell off a swing or something like that. So really taking kind of any uh, moral gray areas out of the running. Sorry if I gave you any spoilers for The Bad Seed. So... Any kind of sexual promiscuity, any kind of evilness was not allowed or had to be punished. The Hayes Code didn't really mention homosexuality at all. It was kind of de facto included. There was a whole thing about sex perversion. And if you ever watch early cinema, it's much more provocative than the cinema that we consider from the golden age of Hollywood. And that's because of these restrictions. There's actually this really great documentary, and I think there's actually a corresponding book called The Celluloid Closet. That's a documentary about the way in which homosexuality became coded in movies as a result of the Hayes Code, ways that people could code different sexualities into these old movies, because it's everywhere. Um, Some great examples of that are Eve Harrington and All About Eve is very clearly a coded lesbian. She... um, she has a couple moments that really show us that. The Hitch- Alfred Hitchcock movie Rope, those characters are very clearly coded gay based on these kind of prescriptions of the Hayes Code. So all of this is to say that I think it's very interesting that at the height of the Hayes Code or coming off of the Hayes Code, even though television was not expected to ascribe to this production code, these were movie stars who came from this era who understood the restrictions. For them to make a gay joke in the first 15 minutes of their entire series, as far as they knew, is incredibly bold. And it's saying, whether they wanted to or not, that they're not going to play by these rules. And I think that that's a very interesting and important context to place the show in historically, is that while the show, you know, as we discussed last week, broke barriers, but not all barriers, there's an awareness of the world around them that I find particularly interesting. And actually, there's some evidence to to show and some historical basis to the idea that television and the popularity of television, such as I Love Lucy, led to the Hayes Code not really being enforced anymore, led to the production code not being um, 
as powerful as it once was, you can see a real, like there's kind of two eras of it, even though it went until the mid 1960s, the late 1960s. Um, you can see that it kind of goes away once the 50s start because some like it hot would have never been allowed to be made at the height of the Hayes Code. It's just too uh, coded. <laughs> it's just too. It's it's just too clear about what it is. But because of television, it seems that there was kind of less concern about it because media and video media was so accessible suddenly. So the Hayes Code went until 1968, at which point it was replaced by the film rating system that we have today, the same one, PGG, G, PG, PG-13, R, and X, or now it's NC-17. Um, so I think it's just a really interesting kind of pinpoint drop into history that uh, about I Love Lucy at this particular time. I thought it was something kind of worth discussing. So that's it for the episode. Really quick, I just want to say hello to Jeff and Kirsty, who both sent me lovely emails. Jeff actually brought up something very interesting about the Jewish references in I Love Lucy. He emailed me before the episode on the diet dropped, and I was like, Jeff, you're right on time. He mentioned that at one point when they're doing um, like a cheers later in the series, Lucy actually says Laheim. And I think that's probably Jess Oppenheimer. He was Jewish and he he loved to put little references in. But I thought that was a fun tie to the Teitelbaum thing with, with Lucy's last name. So hi to both of you. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Kirsty. Thank you so much for listening. And if you would like to get in touch with me, I would absolutely love to hear from you as well. So next week, we are going to be watching The Quiz Show, which is one of my favorites because it features Frank Nelson, who we will see many times, and I adore him. I think he's like the unsung fifth cast member of this show. So here's the log line for The Quiz Show. Lucy's spending is out of control, and Ricky cuts off her credit. Lucy appears on a radio program called Females Are Fabulous, hoping to win first prize. Her stunt is to pretend to Ricky that she has a long-lost first husband. So that's where we will be next week. I'm really excited. I haven't seen this episode in a long... I say this about every episode, but I haven't seen this one in a long time, and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I remember this one being really delightful, and Frank Nelson is super fun. So that's it for me for this week. I will see you next week for the quiz show. The Ricardo Project is recorded in Brooklyn, New York, on my bed with two beautiful cats sitting next to me this time. If you'd like to get in touch with me for any reason at all, I would absolutely love to hear from you. You can reach me on Instagram at The Ricardo Project and by email at thericardoproject at gmail.com. Those are also in the show notes below. If you enjoyed this episode or any of my other episodes, I would so appreciate if you would take the time to rate and review this on Apple Podcasts. It helps more folks find the show, and it also just kind of brightens my day. I mean, it's not about me, but there you go. If you didn't enjoy this episode, I totally get it. I am not for everyone, and that's okay. I hope that you have a wonderful weekend regardless, and I hope to talk to you next week.